in your own time, gentlemen. Must be something big if the channel's here. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion? Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. There is only one way this ends. Last man standing. I'm going back to see my father. We need to keep moving! Come on! I'm going back. We can't possibly no make it that way, man! You bloody insane! Why in God's name did you have to choose me? If you don't get there in time, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. Good luck. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky and I'm one of the editors over at film89.co.uk and on tonight's episode, which for all you fans of numbers is episode 42, I'm joined by a returning co-host. Since his last appearance on our Fight Club episode last June, he's become a full-time writing contributor to the site and is now officially the Californian arm of Film 89. He's a boxing expert, a seasoned podcaster and a rabid cinephile, but moreover, he is a true gentleman. It is, of course, Mr. Jacob Rivera. Jacob, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, Sky. And on tonight's episode, we'll be reviewing director Sam Mendes' new and already critically acclaimed Golden Globe winning World War One drama, 1917. And in keeping with our main feature, we'll be discussing our favourite depictions of war in film and television with contributions from our listeners and friends in film Twitter. So, Jacob, first off, what have you been up to since uh, we last spoke uh, back in June? You know, normal stuff, you know, family, work, uh, watching a lot of boxing, you know, try to go to uh, live boxing events as many as I can, and then seeing a lot of movies, you know, I've just been diving deep into so many movies. Yeah, and obviously you, you did your piece for Film 89. The, the film we're talking about tonight, which has only been released in, in Britain yesterday, uh, January 10th, um, you've actually seen quite a while ago, is that right? Yeah, actually, I saw it, um, I think, right before Christmas um, when it was released. It was kind of like a, a, a special released over here, maybe a couple of days before. And I also rewatched it last night. Is it right that 1917 has had its national U.S. release yesterday? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So the release I saw, what they typically do is they'll do like a release in like maybe New York and mm-hmm. uh, L.A., um, and it'll be like a limited run and then then they'll do like the full release and I think it's just to get uh, considerations for the Oscars because there's a there's a, um, a date that they have to be in a certain amount of theaters and in a certain amount of areas to be eligible. 
Okay, so well, well going into 1917 then, uh, Jake, what were your sort of expectations? What did you hear about the film when you first went into it? I actually had no expectations at all. I had heard I had heard good things about it from uh, James had done he did a review. I think he got into an early screening of it. Um, I think Becky Deanna had had mentioned it, but um, I hadn't like I think I had seen the trailer like one time, but I wasn't like really following it to as one of my you know uh, it was a movie that I wanted to see before the end of the year because I thought it would be maybe possibly up for Oscars, but I didn't have any high expectations for it. You know, this is uh, Mendes's second realm into uh, war, uh, with first being Jarhead, and I wasn't a fan of Jarhead. So, and he's kind of uh, his his career has been very interesting because, you know, it's kind of been up and down. Like, there's some films of his that I love, and then there's some films of his I'm kind of like, you know, hot or cold, or you know, take it or leave it. So, it was very low expectations. Just talk about the director Sam Mendes, and he's you know he hasn't got a huge filmography. I think he's got. You know, actual full-length feature films like ten or something. Well, not even that. If you look on IMDb, I think um, yeah, eight full eight full-length features, which you know isn't great considering when you you know his first sort of big hit, his first theatrical film was American Beauty back in 1999, so 21 years ago. So you know his output in that time has kind of been a little bit slim. American Beauty, Jacob, what, what's your thoughts on that? I love it. I love it, and uh, it you know he's he's one of the few people that on his debut. Uh, feature um you know won the academy award you know so i really like it I, you know i think you know obviously there's you know the whole kevin spacey thing which i you know i push aside i, I kind of just judge it for what it was at that time and not you know trying to rejudge it based on controversies or whatever but you know i think there's probably a lot of people that don't you know have grown to hate it in, in a way because it, it kind of hit more mainstream and and you know artish art house kind of popular art house you know but i i still think it's a solid uh, great film with great performances i've not watched it since the whole scandal about kevin spacey erupted but i do you know i do try and separate the art from the artist and you know i i really like the film uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen it probably for about maybe 10 or 12 years but from what i recall oh, wow. yeah a, a film i absolutely loved in in the cinema um his second film road to Edition. i think that's that's based on a graphic novel isn't it I believe so by uh, Max Allen Collins. And what's your thoughts on that? I like it. I, I think it's a it's an it's not as you know when you start off with American Beauty because I had I have I, I uh, rate American Beauty very high, but when you start off with something like that, you know it's kind of hard to kind of hit that sophomore effort to be you know equal. Um, but I still think it's a it's a solid movie. Um, you know it's got I think one of Paul Newman's final performances, which he's great in it. Daniel Craig's uh, in it. Um, kind of my introduction to him. Uh, I think this and Munich were, were kind of my introductions to Daniel Craig. But uh, I think it's a it's a solid uh, movie. Yeah, and then go, going on through his, his filmography, Jarhead, as you mentioned, from 2005, which is his only other war film you, you said you weren't too keen on. Uh, Revolutionary yeah. Road from 2008. I, I liked it. Didn't, didn't love it, but I liked it. And again, I think there's some strong performances, uh, most notably Michael Shannon, and I think he got a Academy Award nomination for that. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a kind of uh, you know marriage kind of on the rocks is kind of falling apart. But it's one movie I haven't revisited in a long time either. No, same here. And then you got a year later, two thousand nine, Away We Go, which gotta be honest with you, until tonight I'd never even heard of. Have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that in the theater. I actually own it. Uh, so um, I, I I like it. It's a, it's a 
it's very different from his, what his other movies were up to that point. Uh, it's very kind of whimsical and uh, just a, a couple dealing with uh, them having their first baby. And I, I like it. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Maya Rudolph. I think she's she's hysterical. And uh, uh, John Krasinski is very good. And it's got a lot of good supporting uh, parts in it. And then that moves us on to, well, two back-to-back Bond films, 2012 Skyfall and 2015 Spectre. Skyfall uh, was was pretty good. I, I mean, as far as the new Daniel Craig uh, movies, um, I really liked Casino Royale. I probably have to revisit uh, what was the second one? Quantum um, of Solace. Yeah, Quantum of Solace, because I didn't I didn't really love it. I remember seeing it the first time. I didn't love it, but uh, you know, I saw that in the theater. But uh, Skyfall and uh, I think Skyfall is better than Spectra, but they're they're both pretty solid. Skyfall is pretty good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Skyfall, but Spectre, I no, I think that's where this sort of um, new template, which they started to follow with Bond, kind of bizarrely just sort of went back to following, you know, the old sort of cliché style of Bond, and really not a big fan of Spectre, and I'm just hoping that the new Bond film coming out this April um, sort of picks the ball up again, and uh, Daniel Craig can sort of go out on a high. Yeah, it looks pretty good. The trailer... Uh has me intrigued for sure so yeah 1917 unlike you jacob i i've not had you know a few weeks to dwell on this film now um you know I, i've only seen it on release night uh yesterday for me going in i was very intrigued to see what this whole kind of one shot uh you know one take kind of style was going to be like you know thinking back to films which sort of do that kind of thing i, I suppose the most recent one that was a big hit was um birdman uh, from a couple of years back. Right. And how how did you feel that he sort of used that one take style in that film? Was it a gimmick or was it something that the film needed? I don't think it was a gimmick and to to be truthful, I didn't again, I didn't know a ton about this movie. I had heard about this, you know, kind of one-shot thing and I think I think hearing about that it kind of maybe throws some people off because they're looking for flaws in it to say like, "Oh, well, that's where they did the cut" instead of focusing on the story. And so I went in just kind of focusing on the story and I was very kind of drawn in and I I, I thought it was very effective in keeping us kind of in real time and constantly with these characters and just kind of moving throughout in uh, in a beautiful fashion. You know, one thing that Inaritu does in Birdman is actually big time lapses. Now, I know Sam Mendes does one in, in 1917 where there is a, a sort of skip in the passage of time. But thinking back to Birdman, I'm pretty sure that he does it at least twice in the film. But, you know, I felt with Birdman, you know, the whole way that it's shot, and, and, you know, I do really think from a tactical point of view, it's a remarkable film. I think with Birdman, without that as, and I don't use the term gimmick, but, you know, I can't think of a better one, really. I don't think Birdman would have been anywhere near as interesting a film if it hadn't been, you know, for the style in which Inaritu shot it. 1917, on the other hand, if you're going to tell that story, yes, it would have been engaging anyway, but I think we've seen a lot of films like this, you know, certainly since, you know, Saving Private Ryan back in 1998, which kind of kind of pushed the war film into new territory. It, it was sort of grittier, more visceral uh, of a, a war film than I'd ever seen before. And I think a lot of war films since then have tried to actually put the viewer kind of on the battlefront with the soldiers. I, d- I don't think, you know, not to play my hand too early, but I certainly think in 1917, this is something that Sam Mendes absolutely, completely succeeds with. Uh, absolutely. He, uh, I think it, I don't know what's a better word, like you said, uh, than gimmick, but um, I think it, it definitely adds to the, to the film itself. And I don't think it was done in, for gimmick's sake to try to get people to go to the the cinema to see oh what is a 
uh, you know, single shot, you know, film look like. You know, there's so much more layers to this film um, that I think it just it's just an it's like an it's an added uh, ingredient to what makes this film successful. I've watched a few interviews with Sam Mendes uh, since I've seen the film, and so far he hasn't alluded to how many cuts there are in the film. But as much as now now Bill Scurry has said that he actually found the whole. <laughs> sort of one shot one take sort of approach to this film a little bit of a of a distraction now from the point of view i was actually trying to count the cuts in the film or the places where i thought mendes had actually inserted a cut from that point of view you could argue that it was a distraction for me but at the same time it's strange because usually when i'm thinking of the filmmaking process when i'm watching a film that kind of probably means that I'm being pulled out of the film. But this was a rare case where I was conscious of the fact that the filmmaker was kind of playing a visual trick on me. It, it was kind of inviting a little bit of audience participation on my half because I was I was thinking, right, so there's certain bits where, and probably a little bit late now, but for anyone who hasn't seen 1917, we are going to be going full on, spoiler alert. Uh, we're we're going to be you know, giving away crucial plot details. So please, if you want to see the film, turn us off, go away and watch it, and then come back and listen to us. But yeah, there, there were certainly bits where I was conscious that, yeah, I thought, right, clearly there's going to be a cut inserted there. You know, if a character goes into into a shelter, into a bunker, and there's a brief sort of transition to black, obviously that'd be a good place to insert a cut. Uh, there's a lot of scenes where you see, you know, the camera tracking with characters in the background, then an object moves across the frame in the foreground. Obviously that'd be a good place to insert a cut there. And I think all in all, I counted somewhere in the region of 35 to 40 cuts. But again, because Sam Mendes has yet to go on record to, to say how many cuts or how many separate takes the film is made of, it could be a hell of a lot more. It could be hell of a lot less than what I thought I counted because some of them I thought is that a, a transition there or is it just something he's inserting to kind of fool us when it is actually one continuous shot but I think from a technical point of view and I think there's, you know, there's other aspects we're going to come to with regards the cinematography but what do you think of Roger Deakins work in general and then especially his work on this film I mean, the guy's a, a legend. Um, but to, just to go back to what you were speaking about, the, the cuts, again, for me, I think, again, I think the style in which they shot it and this trying to be a continuous cut, I think has kind of hurt the film more than, than anything in the sense that instead of being sucked into the movie and the story, uh, like you said, I think a lot of people are looking for, oh, that's where they did the cut or that's where they did this or, you know, instead of focusing on the movie. I would say, you know, for, for anybody that's going to go out there and view it, just go into the film and enjoy the movie and, and for what it is. And then if you on a sequential viewing, then you can, you know, look for different uh, things, you know, you know, whether it's cuts or whatever uh, for fun. But, uh, you know, the, I think the, the film is better served just appreciating it for what it is and just knowing that it was shot in this style because for for a reason but uh, to go back to Roger Deakins yeah he's legendary man uh, he you know he's worked a lot with the Coen brothers I think 12 times and he's worked with Mendez four times you know his list of people that he's worked with from you know Mamet says um, Zwick twice Jewison twice uh, Ron Howard uh, Shalaman uh, Veneuve three times I mean this guy's worked with everybody um, Scorsese so I mean he's he's definitely one of the stars uh, of this movie you know with this beautiful which I think will be probably when the Oscar um, come uh, you know was it February but uh, he does a great job here with the cinematography well yeah you know he, he, I think he finally bagged an Oscar didn't he for Blade Runner 2049 for best cinematography and you know that is a 
That's a remarkable looking film. So obviously you know, we'll know soon that you know the films are chuffed for nomination, but I think technically this film is is such an outstanding achievement to to pull off what he's done. And you know whatever cuts I, I I saw, only a few were blatantly obvious. I think very very few of the cuts that he inserts are actually ones that I was thinking, yeah, clearly he's cut there, but. Aside from that, the camera movement, the, the camera movement, the way you've got characters, say, traversing a bridge or, you know, walking you know, around a, a pit that's full of water and dead bodies. Yeah, beautiful scene. Yeah, the camera kind of goes across the middle of the of the pool. The water. Yeah. But yet there's no ripples in the water at all. Now, right. we've, we've already seen, because this is one continuous shot, we've seen a wide shot of the pool. So clearly, there's no track laid down. So the only thing I can think of is clearly the camera is suspended you know, from up above. Right. Maybe right. any sort of frames which are holding the camera have been digitally removed in the, in the wide shot. But you know, I was thinking, how the hell are there no ripples in the water? The, and you know, there's, there's shots where later on in the film when George McKay's character is, is climbing across that broken bridge and then the camera sort of just pans across and we're, we're, we're parallel with him. You know, technically, it completely blew my mind. Yeah, you could argue that you know I've, I've probably gone into the film there with the wrong frame of mind. And I think after about 15 minutes, I was probably telling myself, look, Sky, stop counting. You know, but it kind of became a sort of like an additional bit of sort of interaction for me, and it, it didn't really distract me because I think I was I was so engrossed in the film and just you know the level of tension. One of the best things about this film is as much as these two soldiers who were sent on this mission to you know deliver an important message with new orders, which are going to stop sixteen hundred men from being caught in a, in a trap which the Germans are setting for them. I think that aside from the Germans being the enemy. The main enemy is time and the concept of time in this film and the fact you've got an ever-ticking clock. And when we find out that of these 1,600 men, one of our two main characters, his brother is one of them, that kind of gives an added little bit of extra weight. And we can see certainly from um, Dean Charles Chapman's character, as soon as he finds this out, he is just, you know, probably to his detriment, he's just rushing to get this job done as quickly as possible. But, you know, what, what do you think about the way the concept of time is played with, you know, from an editorial point of view? Yeah, it's actually their tagline is time is the enemy. I think it's it's very, you know, again, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, but this is the first film where Sam, Sam Mendes wrote that he's directed um, with a partner. Um, her name is Crystal Wilson Carnes. Um, but uh, so, he, you know, he's he's done, you know, like we said, uh, a lot of uh uh, movies or not a ton ton of movies but you know eight or, or so movies but this is the first time he's written one and i think it's it's kind of laid out with perfect pace and timing to what what the heroes of the story uh, are up against um and again throwing in elements of the brother you know hey not only are we going to save uh you know 1600 soldiers but one of them is pretend you know your brother um, who you can tell he's close to this this journey that these two go on against the clock, you know, and against you know crazy odds, you know, having to go over no man's land, you know, even though it's it's vacated, but you know, still the the haunting destruction that 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 lays in its waste, and just all these you know obstacles to get to this town, you know, their communications have been cut, so there's no way for them to send a you know a telegram or or something to that effect, so they got to you know kind of go on this special mission on foot. I think it's all done, you know, just masterfully. From the very start, the level of tension I thought was palpable, and I think in many respects, it feels like a horror film from the point of view of it. It's, and I think Mendes himself said this is more like a suspense thriller. 
you've got these two characters who are, and especially though know, the, the opening scene where they go well, I say opening scene it's probably you could argue that the whole film is one continuous scene which is I suppose the point but you know when they go up over the out of the trench into no man's land you know that that was the first time in the film I was just on the edge of my seat and you know the camera's panning around you, you know you you're just waiting for that moment of of you know the Germans opening fire, but as they've been told, you know the Germans have actually vacated. They've 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 gone. They've abandoned their posts, which obviously is part of the trap. And I suppose that you know the first kind of real tangible danger that the men come to, aside from you know snagging their hands on barbed wire and the mountains of dead bodies, is when they go into the German tunnels and come across the rats and the booby trap. The, the tension doesn't kind of let up from the off, and it, it's. It, you know the film is just short of two hours. I think it, it's about around about an hour and fifty. Taking away the credits, you know, from start to finish, it was just you know the only thing recently I can sort of equate this film to is Uncut Gems, where you know I'm, I'm constantly on edge. There's a constant sense of tension, but it's nowhere near to the level it was in 1917. And I, I think again, yeah, from that point of view, he's crafted a film that's both a war film. It's got elements of horror because you're constantly on the edge. You see, just waiting, you know, for the bogeyman to sort of pop out of the shadows. You know, in this case, the Germans. It, it was just incredibly uncomfortable but you know in a good way if that makes sense no yeah perfect sense i I think you know tension is is a good word to describe this because there is a lot of tension you know throughout the film because i think because of what we know of war um and the setting you know what war does um you know it, it it's destroys and it's just very destructive and and you know terrible and and you know just a lot of things happen you know people probably do things that they wouldn't think that they would ever do so you have these two young guys who are you know i don't think that they're like the the top soldiers of this whole uh you know uh group but they're just called upon to do this this mission and so you know they're doing the best that they can with the abilities that they have to to go through this but you know with that setting against the war you know you just you're just you never know you're like you're just waiting for a gunshot to go off or a, a bomb to explode like a mine or something or uh you know a tank to come around the corner and 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 mow them down because you know they're it's just them too with you know their their guns and bayonets and and you know they don't really you know have a lot of uh you know backup you know so to speak so the tension is just is, is high um, and I think is a lot different than what you mentioned before, Uncut Gems. Uh, different kind of tension. Yeah, that, you know, that that's more kind of like th- this is sort of pure nail biting in terror and tension. Whereas I think Uncut Gems is just a constant sense of anxiety because this guy, you know, Adam Sandler's character is just a complete fuck up and he's just doing everything wrong. So it's more from the point of view of you kind of like oh, what the hell is he doing? What's he going to do now? Whereas with this film, obviously the threat is coming externally to the main characters. And, you know, I, I just, I can't help but go back on thinking that the way Mendes employs horror tropes, you wait for so long at the beginning, or, you know, clearly with the passage of time, it actually isn't that long at all. But, that, you know, the, the scenes going across no man's land, where we're expecting something to happen, nothing does happen. And then when they get then into the German tunnels and we see, you know, the rats, then they sort of find the, the trip by a booby trap. You know, he employs a kind of like a false scare because the rat kind of drops to the floor with the, the bag of food or whatever it was. And you think, oh, whew, right, we're okay. But then the rat runs at the trip by a boom, there's your scare. So you've, you've got like a false scare and then the actual jump scare. I think there's a few times. Yeah, I, I was legitimately scared when that happened. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and just the sound of the in the theater, you know, because it was a loud sound, but it was it, it, de- it definitely had me jump. Yeah. And, and going back to the technical thing, I, I'm glad in a way that I didn't see a press preview screening of this film because nine times out of ten, if you ever go to see a press screening in the UK, it's never in IMAX, it, it's never in the, the best possible format, it's usually just a standard 2D screening. Now, as much as this isn't a 3D film, I was lucky enough to see this film in IMAX in Dolby Atmos. The sound design in the film is, is just staggering, especially when you're inside in those sort of German tunnels and you've got the you know the sound of the explosion echoing. It just you know, I, I literally jumped on my skin a few times in this film, and the, you know the sound design is incredible. You just you feel like you're immersed in this film. And the fact it's almost like a POV, like a kind of Call of Duty video game approach, which Mendes is taking because you're constantly with these characters, and, and in a way it makes you you know you, you're with them all the way. And like the the scene where they're watching the the the, the two biplanes having a dogfight with a lone German plane in in the one continuous shot, it's planes off in the distance, and then all of a sudden. One of the planes is hit, it kind of goes down behind the hill and then comes back up and flies right towards the camera. And that I I can't think of anywhere in a film where I've ever seen a shot done like that. It's just absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I, I think there's there's many, you know, just remarkable uh scenes in this movie. And like I said, they're kind of spaced out enough where it's not just all action or all explosions. You know, there there's you're able to build a uh, care for these characters and build a rapport with them, and it is like you said. I, I don't. I think this was was Mendes's intention was to to be with these characters like like you're a fly on the wall, so to speak, or an angel on the shoulder, um, where you get to kind of see everything happening almost from their point of view you know but uh yeah it's the the sound design and and just the way it's shot is just you know i i think easily this is going to be i think it's going to be up for a lot of awards and this is a total oscar movie but not not in a bad way i don't i don't i don't think that it doesn't deserve the praise that it's getting or any awards that it gets i think it's 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 well deserved from from all aspects of the film that you know just kind of came together to make a really great film yeah i agree and even thomas newman's score which you know it doesn't overpower the film now i'm going to probably be making quite a few parallels to christopher nolan's dunkirk because i think nolan kind of employs a few sort of little technical things which i I think you know nolan is probably watching this phone i can imagine he's kicking himself thinking why the hell didn't i come up with a concept like that because personally for me, I don't think Dunkirk works as a war film anywhere near as good as it should. I think the film lacks character development. I don't think it gets across adequately the scale of the Dunkirk massacre, where it was hundreds of thousands of men, whereas in his film, it just comes across as a few hundred men. I just don't get the sense of scope in the film, although you know, technically from the, you know, the point of view of the aerial scenes of the planes, it is incredibly well done, mostly shot for real. Again, you know, I don't get a sense of scale because he, he sort of pairs everything down to a minimalist level that kind of, I think, undersells the actual true events that took place. Whereas with this film, because it's more an intimate story of, of two men you know, on a very specific mission, I think the kind of smaller scale kind of works and and the, the gimmick, and again, I don't want to use that in any sort of negative connotation that Mendes employs, just works absolutely perfectly because we're not up in a, you know, in a plane having a dogfight. You know, we're not in a tank battle. We're literally ground level with these two soldiers and everything that happens around them is happening either off in the distance or, you know, they're always the center of focus. The, the use of score when it's done quite sparingly as it is in this film is done very effectively. 
And going back to the point I was making about Dunkirk is the fact that I felt that Hans Zimmer's score in Dunkirk was so overpowering. It just kept undoing itself. It kept ratcheting up to moments of tension to a crescendo, to another crescendo, to another crescendo. And the film kind of failed to deliver. So from that point of view, when Zimmer's music is building to another crescendo, I'm thinking, you've lost me now, Hans. You know, the, the, the actual, your music is actually getting in the way of my enjoyment of the film. I'm, it was kind of like, you know, nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, I, I really don't think that film is anywhere near as good as a lot of people give it credit for. I know you're a big fan of Christopher Nolan, Jacob, but for me, I think this film is, you know, on all fronts, a far better war film and a far better film in general than Dunkirk. I, I completely agree with you, Sky. I, I think Dunkirk, you know, I am a huge Christopher Nolan fan. I'm a huge defender of Interstellar, which is, you know, has a lot of controversy around it in the sense of, you know, uh, you know what, what he was trying to do. But I, I, Dunkirk, I did like it. I wasn't blown away by Dunkirk, though. Um, I think it's probably one of his weaker films, but, you know, still very good. But I think that this movie as a whole blows this uh, Dunkirk out of the water, you know, pun intended. Hmm. And again, it's I don't think it's a it's it's not a competition, you know. I mean, these what these directors and and you know sometimes writer directors are trying to do with their movies, you know, they have a vision and hopefully they're able to achieve it. And you know, not everything is going to appeal to everyone, you know. Even you know our favorite directors have their you know hits and misses, you know. I think you know Sam Mendes was able with the the team that he put together was able to craft just such a. a a masterpiece you know I'm, I'm gonna i mean i'm just gonna say it. it's it's a masterpiece a lot of directors throughout time have you know whether they've done a space movie or a war movie or you know just different genres of movies i think he he's very successful in what he's done here and to add on to what you were saying before about um the score uh thomas newman i thought it was perfectly said by you where it's not overpowering you know i did um take notice of it but in a good way like it, it didn't it added to the film uh, as opposed to um uh, zimmer's uh score um which i love him i i think he does beautiful work but sometimes he can it can be a little overpowering you know or sometimes the type of music is very repetitive like you know you can you can if you look at like in inception and the thin red line and um uh interstellar all the the music is very similar um great but very similar but uh I I I think you you hit it right in the head with uh, all your uh, sentiments. No, you know I don't want to hit on Zimmer you know too negatively because for me he's a composer. I always said before on the podcast he is equal parts genius and frustrating. One of the films you mentioned there, The Thin Red Line, Terence Malick's uh, film from 1998. I, I, I will confidently say hands down that that for me is one of the greatest film scores I've ever heard. It is just equal parts tension building and sort of beautifully poetic it's a, it's a remarkable score and and one of the most perfect film scores i've ever heard it's just unfortunate then that the same composer when he he's probably not being as restrained as he should and you know every good composer knows that one of the best tools at their disposal is silence and when not to use music and you know i certainly think for interstellar and and dunkirk the, the music is just used far too frequently whereas with this film you know, like you say, it's just, it's another perfect component. And you've said already, Jacob, you put your cards on the table, you think this film is a masterpiece. I'm going to second that. I went into this film with quite high expectations because I had heard nothing but good about it. I hadn't heard a negative word about the film. And I was also very intrigued to see how Mendes would actually pull off this sort of central gimmick. But from start to finish, I was 
absolutely mesmerised. Undoubtedly for me, this is one of the, the greatest cinema experiences I've had in, in certainly in the last year. You know, unfortunately, we, we've all, you know, all, all the, the Film 89 team have, have done separate articles as part of a big series of this sort of rundown or review of 2019. I think yours is one of, maybe the only one, um, that included 1917 on that list because I think you're the only one out of us who'd seen it but I can say hand on heart this film if I was going to include it in the crop of films I saw throughout 2019 this would be top three material it is just an absolutely incredible film you know let's let's talk about the performances what do you think of the two main leads Dean Charles Chapman and George Mackay I think they both are, are great you know I, I've never I, I mean I hadn't heard of either one of the guys which I think kind of is is good in this sense, because sometimes I think when we see we associate, you know, when we when we know someone like Brad Pitt or George Clooney, you know, you, you know who that guy is and you kind of have your oh, this is the way he acts or, you know, this is the way he, you know, his is his style. So having kind of two little known or unknown people, I think, draws you into the story more than paying attention, attention to the acting. Uh, so to speak, to almost take this for like, you know, like like real life, like you're watching a, doc- a documentary. Sorry. Yeah, I think they, they both do a great job. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think um, they do a great job of raising the stakes when, you know, halfway through or, or maybe like uh, almost halfway through one of them dies, you know, Blake dies, mm. you know. So, you know, now it becomes a single man almost, uh, you know, mission, you know, so it was hard enough as it is an almost impossible task with two guys, just two, you know, regular soldiers, but now one dies and it's not the one, you know, the the original reason that Blake took the, or wanted to do the mission was because of his brother, right? Yeah. So he dies and then the guy that's not, con- has never met his brother, is not connected to his brother and uh, to the other guy's brother in any way, Schofield has to, you know, continue this miss- mission almost as a kind of a tip to the hat of his fallen uh, comrade, you know? You know, it's like he, he it becomes even so more important than ever that he has to complete this mission. Well, you, you say you've never seen Chapman before, but you've actually seen him die on screen, Jacob. He is Tom and Baratheon in Game of Thrones, the one who uh, ends up throwing himself out of the tower in King's Landing. Oh, is that him? Yeah. So Watching the film yesterday. He yeah, he does. He does. He's, you know, he's kind of filled out a bit now. He, he kind of looks like a really young, chubbier kind of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> I like that description of chubby Leonardo DiCaprio. Chubby Leonardo DiCaprio. I'll take I'll take that. I mean, yeah. he, he's, he's considered he's considered dreamy. I wish I was a chubby Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, I'll I'll say baby face then. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously we've got you know a few kind of big stars peppered throughout in little kind of cameos for want of a better word. You've got uh, Colin Firth as General Aaron Moore. I think he's the first. Uh, then we've got Mark Strong pops up. Uh, the great, great Mark Strong. The great Mark him. Strong. Yeah. Play, playing a good guy for once because he always tends to get cast as the bad guy. Ah, <laughs> uh, what's the guy from? From uh, he's from the most recent Black Mirror. Imitation Game. You talking about that guy? No. Um, Benedict. Yeah, Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch. Obviously, uh, no, Andrew Scott. He turns up. Uh, turns up as the one uh, Lieutenant Leslie, the one that actually gives him the flare gun. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's from uh, Black Mirror and a load of other things. Uh, Fleabag. He was also in season two of that. And yeah, then obviously we've got Doctor Strange himself uh, towards the end. And then obviously um, another Game of Thrones uh, character, uh, Rob Stark, turns up as the brother. 
That's right. You know, I, that's another, you know, I, you know, I, I did watch Game of Thrones, but you know, it's when you, you're so, you know, he's, he died such a long time ago. I get yeah. like so removed from these, these characters and, and, but yeah, you're right. That that's, that's him. Richard Madsen. Or Richard. Something? Yes, of course. Yeah. Richard Madden. Yeah. So I, what, what I wanted to say though, um, just a kind of a thing to add on here is that even though, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, this gimmick or this added feature to this film of the one continuous shot even knowing that it wasn't actually one continuous shot it's very impressive what they were able to do with these long you know because there's definitely long shots long scenes if they if they mess up you know a little bit or or once then you know they got to shoot that scene all over again right yeah you know um so i think they've done you know that's why again a masterpiece is comes into play is because there's many of those uh, shots in the movie that are just brilliant um, and, you know, just done so well, you know, acted well and whatever, you know, all, all the elements. But um, the production design on this is great. The, I, I heard that they did they dug like over two miles worth of trenches and just, you know, it, it has the look and feel of you being in in that setting, uh, World War. Uh, one, you know, they I just did they did just did a great job with with all that. I, I think you know they they filmed on on location on a bunch of places, but uh, you know they you know they did um, dig the trenches and and did you know and added I think added a lot to the film. And then the the scene uh, in particular that that I want to touch on, which is a kind of a I think an homage to um, Pass of Glory, is the scene where you know Schofield comes up after he's gone out of the water, uh, the the river or whatever, and he's come out. And he finds the company and there's a, a, a man singing a song with all the soldiers, you know, just kind of in a uh, wrapped in a circle around him, listening to him sing this song. And it's quiet. It's this quiet moment, you know, after all this kind of chaos and uh, him, you know, kind of going through all these, you know, uh, obstacles. You have this very quiet moment and very, you know, again, reminiscent of Pass of Glory, you know, one of the final scenes where, um, you know, the soldiers are there enjoying this beautiful voice and this quiet moment and all this, all this, you know, destruction and just to know that that they're human again to to kind of find humanity yeah it, it was a beautiful moment and but then other moments in the film that got to me was first off the level of decay that you know the dead horses the 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 fact that you can see you know it's not just dead bodies some of them are bloated and swollen some of the ones in water others are just sort of you know the the, the crows have picked the flesh off his eyes missing it's just without again being able to smell what he's putting up on screen there you can just almost imagine how just putrid and just vile that whole environment would be. Another scene that got to me was the scene where he meets the French girl with a baby. Oh yes, yeah. Oh now, not no, even her baby. Not, not even, not her, even baby. her baby. And that that child looks maybe a little bit older than my five month old daughter. And I'd be thinking, you know, how could you bring up a baby in that environment with no food? You know, like like she says, you know, he offers all, you know, he gets all his rations out. He says, please take all of this, take whatever you need. She says, no. You know the baby needs milk, and thank God that you know he filled up his bottle with uh, right. the the milk from the bucket. Which yeah, you could you could argue was a bit of a convenient setup early on in the film, and a bit of an obvious payoff. But you know by that point, I, I'm fully invested in this, and I'm just thinking, my God, he you know he has to save this woman and his child, and I know that's a scene that really got to me. And then there was the bit at the very end. Oh, we you know we don't know much about Schofield's character. In fact, we don't know much about any of them. And I think one of the criticisms I've seen, I have seen by you know one reviewer about this film is the fact that there's a lack of character development. But I think because this is such a tightly paced, tightly plotted film where time is a key element to it, I don't think we've got time for 
pointless exposition and unnecessary character development. Now, character development is always important in a film, but when front and centre you've got this constant sense of pace and you know, a need to get this job done, I think what little character development Mendes does give us is is just as much as we need. And it's that bit at the end where Schofield is sat under the tree. You know, he keeps pulling up this tin uh, or this sort of like box which he keeps you know in his, his left breast pocket and we see that a lot of the time throughout the film and at the end we finally see what it is and you know it's, it's a note from what we can assume is his wife and you know he's got two children because he says early on in the film he's been home before you know he's he's been granted shore leave he's gone back but then he says the worst thing is knowing that i have to come back here and they may never see me again and it was that bit at the end where he sees that note and, you know, from our point of view, this might not be over for him. Certainly the campaign isn't over and he, he may never see his family again. And that was another bit that really got to me. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, um, you know, and I have to disagree with the, the reviewer who said that there was no character development. I mean, again, this movie is a, it's a it's a mission movie, you know, men on a mission movie set against the war. But I think you're given just the right amounts of character. You know, you, you get to see little things about their character because you're not sure how close these two are because they're just kind of plucked out from the very beginning. And then you find out later, you know, when, when Schofield is kind of telling Blake, you know, why'd you, why'd you have to choose me or why'd you choose me? You know, so, they, you know, they're not like best friends, but they're, they're very, you know, they're semi-associated. And then as they're walking you know, they, they have little bits of conversation, but then just also, you know, when, when Blake dies and, and, you know, Schofield goes on and, and tells him that he's going to find his brother and stuff, you know, it, it gives you elements of these are the kinds of kids that we're dealing with, you know, yeah. they're, they're not, you know, selfish and, and they do have, you know, a heart, him taking, you know, some, you know, I think it was the ring and, and a couple items from Blake to be able to give to his brother, um, wanting to write back home to his mom, you know, another effective scene is when he, you know, he, when he does meet the brother and he, he finds him and he has to tell them, you know, he says, Hey, I came here with your brother or we were sent on a mission from your brother. And he's like all excited. And he's like, Oh, where, where is he? Where is he? That, that part got to me too, because you know, it's, um, you know, I have, I have brothers and, um, but just, you know, just to lose a family member, um, you know, is just must be terrible. But I, I think that it's given just the, the right amount of character, you know, throughout the, throughout the movie. Um, it's given a, a, a right amount, you know, even the scene that you were talking about before with the girl where he's willing to give up his food and everything for this baby and this girl he just met, you know, he, he has no connection to them, but he wants to do these things. Another scene I would like to kind of hit on though, it, uh, another great scene I think is, um, towards the end when he has to, they're about to make the charge and, you know, they're, they're sending the, the waves and he comes up over the trench to, to get to the other side because the, the best way is to cut through instead of going through the trench. And as he's running through, they send the wave and he's like running into people, but he could, you know, it's a continuous shot. There's explosions going everywhere. You know, it's just wonderfully filmed and, you know, he gets all the way to where he needs to and then jumps back into the trenches, I think is just another incredible, incredible shot. Oh, and yeah, I, I fully agree, Jacob. And, you know, one key scene, I think we've, you know, we we've not given this its proper dues is the actual you know the the death of Blake so early on in the film. Now I think if Mendes had kind of you know followed a conventional plot structure with this film, that one of the two characters would have died later on in the film. But you know losing him so early in the manner in which we do. Now as soon as they downed that plane and they pulled the the burning German pilot out, I thought right this is going to probably go into familiar territory now of putting them in the moral quandary of having to deal with this 
German pilot that they've saved. But no sooner does Schofield go off to fill his cantina. Oh, sorry, yeah, he fills his helmet up with water, doesn't he? Because you know he has to, he's, he's trying to get in water. No sooner does he, does he do that, then it cuts back to Blake, and he's been stabbed. Schofield draws his weapon, kills the German, and then we've got to deal with that. And you think, right, okay, he stabbed him in the stomach. Is he going to be able to get him help? And, you know, the, the way you see the colour drain out of Blake, because clearly he's hit, he's hit an artery, he's he's bleeding like a stuck pig. The, the way that the colour drains from him and he goes grey because obviously here he is bleeding out. Oh, it's so well done and I did not see that coming. And it's another reason why this film just works on so many levels is it just constantly keeps you on edge and you don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, they and and they could have easily done the the cliche thing to do where one of them gets really injured, um, you know, because uh, earlier Schofield got injured and in, you know where he almost died in in the in yeah. the mines or the underground tunnels, you know, when the explosion, he's basically under rock and you know he gets dug dug out, he can't see, he's got a you know another tension filled scene where he's got to jump across a trench, you know, without having to see, you know, just kind of on blind trust. They could have had him had an injury, have him you know hobble, and then you know eventually that 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 crew comes by or the other company comes by. And that's where he gets the truck ride. So if they would have come maybe moments sooner, maybe, you know, maybe they have a medic, maybe they're able to save him and, you know, he's able to finish the movie. But I think the the risks are high uh, in this and so and the real. So I think it was the perfect thing to do to lose our basically our main character and then basically turn it into now it's the other main character, maybe, you know, the second main character's job to finish this movie. So then, Jacob, uh, wrapping things up then, what's your final thoughts and your scores out of 10 for 1917? Um, so no uh, secret, if you, if you read my, my piece on the, the site and my year in review, this is my number two film. And, you know, as I said before, I think it's a masterpiece. I, I, you know, I give it a 10 out of 10. I think this is just it, it does everything that a film's supposed to do. It, it moves me. It's beautifully shot. The sound design, the acting, composing, the you know everything for, for top to bottom, it just does everything right. It's one, it's a film that I know I will, you know, I, I like I said before, I watched it again last night, but I will revisit this film, and I think I'll still be moved by this film. I think it's a, a cinematic achievement, so I give it a ten out of ten. And I, you know, anybody that hasn't seen the film, if you come this far, you know, even, even though we spoiled a bunch of stuff, <laughs> I, I still think that you'll still be impacted by this film even even knowing you know the spoilers you know it's it's a it's a powerful film it's beautiful I, i'm gonna match you there jacob it's a 10 out of 10 for me you know i, I go into any film and I, I start from the top and i chip points off for things i feel a film does wrong and i don't think this film does anything wrong that is worthy of knocking it down you know the, the whole concept of trying to do this in what appears to be one shot is an extremely brave thing to do it's extremely brave when you're doing it in a sort of confined murder mystery, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which was done, I think, in about maybe 10 or 12 separate takes, which you know were quite cleverly stitched together, especially for a film that was made in 1948. But for this film, where there's so many, it, it, there's incredible action, pyrotechnics going off, there's so many different things they have to account for. From a technical point of view, I think it is just worthy of every potential Oscar it can get. The cinematography is just phenomenal. My, my jaw was literally just hanging low, thinking, how the hell 
are they getting the camera you know around these characters and and just places where you know a camera shouldn't really fit without it ever feeling like it's gimmicky now i've used the word gimmick a few times but i don't mean that in any sort of negative way you know it's just you know a style and, and a technique of filmmaking which mendes is using here which isn't you know a conventional filmmaking technique but you know even aside from that even if this was done conventionally i'd still think it would be a really moving, powerful World War One drama. Putting the tactical stuff on top of it, it just adds multiple layers of things to appreciate. And I just came out with the film completely satisfied. I'm not going to include this in our subsequent list of favourite war films, simply because um, you know I did my list before I'd seen this film. I don't want to push anything out of our list. I don't want to talk about this film any more than I have now. But you can guarantee if I was going to reconsider my list, I would definitely be thinking of putting this on that list because it's just an absolutely remarkable film. So yeah, it's a 10 out of 10 from me as well. So that is Jacob, a film 89 verdict for 1917 of 10 out of 10. More than double what uh, Rise of Skywalker got from <laughs> yeah. 89. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, well, if, if you take into account Jim Cottles, I think he gave it, did he give it one? Did he give it one? Yeah, I think, I think he, he, gave it, he gave it, I think he ended up, did he raise it to two maybe? Or, no, I think, or... he, I think he gave it a one. And then with mine and Neil trying to be a little bit more reasonable about it, I think, yeah, Rise of Skywalker, I think he got three out of 10. Oh, dear me. Yeah, so that's a 10 out of 10 for 1917. of war, not history's forces, nor the times, nor justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. We carry it like syphilis inside, dead bodies rotting field and stream because the living ones are rotten. For the love of God, can't we love one another just a little? That's how peace begins. We have so much to love each other for. We have such possibilities, my children. We could change the world. We've had a bit of a break in recent episodes uh, of always popular uh, favourite three or favourite five or sometimes favourite ten segment. But tonight, in keeping with the main theme of our review, uh, we're going to be talking about our favourite war films or, more precisely, our favourite depictions of war in film and television. So uh, we're going to be spanning both the the big and the small screen. Uh, Jacob, uh, I think we've both picked five. Um, Have you picked any honourable mentions? Yeah, I have uh, have a another five honorable mentions or so right let's do things differently tonight let's do the honorable mentions before we go with our first pick at number five what what are your honorable mentions jacob so you kind of alluded to it earlier um i think 1917 i didn't put it on my list but i think if i were to redo the list it 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 would probably be up there um i really loved it but i'm going to put it as an honorable mention for right now saving private ryan uh enemy at the gates full metal jacket the thin red line glory and then as a show, Band of Brothers. And then I kind of have 
I, I don't know if this is cheating, but I put 300 in there because I love that movie. And there's a lot of battle in it. I don't know if you consider it a, you know, a war movie or it's fiction. So, But I, I kind of have it as a little side one. Yeah, I think it counts. You know, if it's, if it's a depiction of war, then yeah, it's the Spartans fighting. Right. The uh, What's his name? Uh, the Persians. Yes, the, the Persians. Uh, the yeah. Persian army. Yeah. So yeah, you know, that counts. I, I haven't been anywhere near as um, controlled in, in my list of, of, of honorable mentions. Uh, right or wrong. I, I've sort of gone broader and thought of any film that is a film about war, even if the war is kind of background or secondary to the main plot. I think from that point of view, Casablanca can count, so I've put that in my honourable mentions, even though yeah, it's definitely. not a war film as such. Paths of Glory, Kubrick, absolutely remarkable, um, just amazing film. Uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, Zulu, The Deer Hunter. This will be controversial for anyone who's listened to our uh, <laughs> apocalypse now episode but because i've talked about that film at length before i've decided to leave it out it is definitely a film that could go in my top five i absolutely love the film i think it's remarkable but because i've said so much about that film before on a previous episode i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna leave that in my honorable mentions you've then got das boot uh, come and see which is just a remarkable and harrowing film from 1985 platoon which again i pained over putting in this list full metal jacket which was on on this list for the longest time Starship Troopers, which is kind of a bit of a cheat, but a few of the guys on the Film 89 team, Neil especially, has brought it up and said, it's a war film. It comments on war. Surely it can count. So from that point of view, I'm going to put that it in. It counts. Yeah. It counts. Another one which I pained over is, is Saving Private Ryan. But if you, you know, one of my choices later on will kind of make up for that. You've got The Thin Red Line from 98. You know, Terrence Malick's film, I think, is unfairly maligned and, and was left in the shadow of Private Ryan. I wasn't particularly keen on it when I first watched it, but it's one of those films that's just grown on me over the years, and now I just absolutely love it. Uh, Black Hawk Down, The Last Samurai I've put in. I know a lot of people kind of balk. Good pick. I, 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 I love the film. I really do like it. I, I, I own it, and I, I think it, you know, yeah. for, for all the, you know, people talk about Tom Cruise. Bill, and, Bill, you Bill know. Scurry is going to be hissing us, Jacob. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that's... Uh, Films are subjective, yeah. you know, it's art, you know, you like what you like. And uh, Then Downfall uh, from 2004, and Paul, another Paul Verhoeven film, and this time an actual legitimate war film, Black Book from 2006. I'm very interested to know what you're talking, because you, uh, you ran down your list of films, mm. honorable mentions, I'm very interested to know what your top five is now. Well, let's, let's go with your number five then, Jacob. So my number five is one that, kind of so this is kind of set against the war it's not so much a war film but it's uh joe schumacher's uh tigerland ah, um, right. and it's uh set against vietnam uh, uh basically they're training it's a, at a training site and it's a colin farrell's like kind of introduction you know mainstream introduction to to the world i, I believe that's how he got the part in minority report with steven spielberg was him seeing you know tigerland but it's got like Clifton Collins Jr., like early appearances, you know, from a bunch of different actors, um, uh, Shay Wimingham or Wingham, uh, just so many. There's so many uh, great people in it. But it, it just, I, I own the film. I just recently watched it, probably about a month ago. It's still, still as it ever was. Uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people haven't heard of it. So if you have a chance to go see it, it's not like you know. I know when I say Schumacher, you're you're thinking nipples on the bat suit and and you know all that stuff you know he's done some terrible things but um this is actually one of his better films and i i think you should check it out 
you, you mentioned Enemy at the Gate, and then you brought up Tigerland. Confession time, I've seen neither of them. If, if memory serves, they're both those kind of films that kind of came in the wake of, of you know, Private Ryan when that kind of, you know, rejuvenated the interest in war films. But yeah, got to say, unfortunately, Jacob, I've seen neither. You got to see them, Sky. Both of them. Both of them are, 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 are very good. My number five is, it's a film that I saw in the cinema with my wife uh, when it came out back in 2007. And I went in, expect, you know, bear in mind, it, it comes from the director of Pride and Prejudice. And I expected it to be not what it ended up being. And that is Joe Wright's Atonement. Now, it, it's an adaptation of Ian McEwan's novel. And at first, it does kind of play like a period drama with World War II as merely background dressing. But as this story of a man who is wrongly accused of the rape of a teenage girl moves on, it very much does become a tale of this young couple whose lives are devastated, not only by this wrongful accusation, but also by the war itself. And when it gets to the point then, you know, when we actually join James McAvoy's character in combat... When we meet him, there's this incredible, I think five or six, maybe seven minute long, kind of uninterrupted scene, which as we're following these characters, they end up on the beach at Dunkirk. Now, bearing in mind that this film was made on a fraction of the budget that Christopher Nolan would later make his actual retelling of Dunkirk, I genuinely believe that what Joe Wright did in this one scene far outshines anything that Christopher Nolan eventually did with Dunkirk in so much as the sheer scale of you know the 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 Dunkirk sort of uh, massacre. Even though we don't actually see the massacre, we see the amount of troops which are amassed on the beach. It is it's a, a beautiful kind of scene, a shot of magic hour, and you know the amount of work that went into this scene. The shooting schedule dictated that the scene had to be completed in two days, because the crew was limited with about a thousand extras, and the locations r- report indicated that the lighting quality at the beach wasn't good enough. You know to shoot for the you know the as long as they wanted to so this forced joe wright into you know adopting a different shooting strategy and shooting with just one camera the scene was rehearsed on the first day and then also again on the second day of shooting it required five takes and it was the third take that was used in the final cut of the film the steady cam operator shot the scene by riding on a small tracking vehicle walking off he was then going on to a bandstand going around a boat if you if you just watch that shot it is just from a technical point of view one of the most remarkable shots i've ever seen and aside from that the film itself is just devastating for people who haven't seen it it really does hit home how devastating war can be on all fronts both on the home front and for you know the you know the, the young men who are fighting the germans on the battlefront it's just a remarkable film and every time i watch it it just gets better and i think i watched it about maybe two years ago and i was just completely blown away by the film and it just isn't a film gets talked about anywhere near as much as it should and it's also from a cinematography point of view one of the most beautiful films i've ever seen it's just remarkable i'm gonna have to revisit it i I did i see i saw atonement in the theater and i have to say i was a little kind of underwhelmed by it um, but I do, I do agree with uh, the the shots that you were talking about. Again, I think I, I haven't seen it since it was in the theater, but I, I remember not being completely satisfied by it. But uh, based on your kind of love for it, I, I think I'll give it a revisit. You know, I actually might be not actually telling things as they were. I probably didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I'm recalling when I first saw it in the cinema. I was just probably a little bit surprised with the fact that it didn't end up being the kind of period drama I expected it to be. And 
I think I actually remember a few years ago when I said to my wife, look, I really want to re-watch Atonement. She said, why? You didn't really enjoy it. And then we both sat down and watched it. And at the end, we just turned to each other. And she said, see, I was right all along. Because she loved the film from the start. Right. I was like, yeah, you, you were absolutely right. Because I actually I think she'd read the book. Then we went to see the film. She was like banging on about it, saying how great it was going to be. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And you know, looking at what Joe Wright had done, thinking, oh, this is not going to be my cup of tea at all. But I, I've had to put it in my list simply because it just doesn't get the credit the film deserves. Yeah, I'm going to definitely, definitely re- rewatch it because I did see it with my wife too. And I, I, I remember us being both like underwhelmed. So what's your number four? My number four is uh, Passive Glory, which is, oh. you know, Kubrick's, um, you know, Full Metal Jacket, I think, gets most of the love when it comes to Kubrick uh, uh, war films. But I believe, to me, Passive Glory is just, it's so great. It's just the way it's shot, the 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 acting, you know, just overall. It's it's another you know masterpiece of filming. Again, a lot of uh, being in the trenches, being on the on the war uh, on the war plane. The beautiful end that we you know that I spoke about earlier with the the singing and just you know kind of looking over the soldiers' faces. I just think it hits on so many notes, and and um, I think it's one of Kubrick's best. It's certainly, I think, the best. And, you know, and again, we just talked about a, an amazing war film about World War One. But I think before 1917, I would definitely say The Paths of Glory was the the best film about World War One. But it isn't just about World War One; it's about the politics and the morality of war. And I think from that point of view, it's just an amazing film, and it's got far more depth to it than almost any other number of war films I think you can mention. And it's you know, it's got an amazing central performance by Kirk Douglas, who is still going. At, is he, isn't he 103 now? Yeah, I think he just had his 103rd birthday. Not that 103 long years old. Oh, my God. Crazy. Word. Yeah, amazing film. Right, my number four. This is a very last-minute addition to this list, simply because a load of those films that I've mentioned in my honourable mentions are films that I've seen far more than this film and probably will be more eager to watch before I go back to this film. But I put this film on simply because it is one of the most important films ever made. I, I think it's a film that should be shown in every school, in every country, just so we learn from the lessons that this film teaches us that we must never allow you know, an organisation like the Nazis ever to gain power again. That film is... 1993 Steven Spielberg Schindler's List you know it, it won seven Oscars um, it, it's not an easy film for me personally to watch over and over there are films further up this list which I've picked which are certainly more light-hearted almost bordering on like adventure fair but I, I couldn't in all good consciousness admit what is just an incredible incredible film you know it, it should be made you know, required viewing but how the hell do you show children you know this film and at what age do you start showing them because it, it just does not punish punches at all you know to think that this film was made by steven spielberg in the same year that he made jurassic park and ralph fines as you know the monstrous Eamon goeth makes for one of the most just pure outright evil on-screen villains i've ever seen I wouldn't rush to watch this film again, but I know if I did, I would be, as I have been every time I've seen the film at the end, thinking, yeah, that is just one of the greatest films ever made and one of the most important films. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, it's one of those films that, like you were saying, though, it's just, it's so, it is so important. It's so, you know, moving and, and touching and just it's crazy that, that, you know, these atrocities happened at the scope that it happened. But it's also one of those movies, like you mentioned, though, that it's not one that I would put on, you know, to revisit because it's just so sad and just so, you know, just hits hits in that place where, you know, you just don't want to even 
kind of think about it. But um, I do agree with you. It's a, it's an important, great film. So, Jacob, what's your number three? My number three is uh, set in the Gulf War, um, and it's Three Kings. Uh, David O. Russell's oh. Three Kings. I love this movie. I love this movie. I, you know, when I, I didn't see it in the theater, I saw it on video. For the, the young people out there that don't know, there used to be these these things called video cassettes, not DVDs <laughs> or streaming. So you used to have to go to a video store and you know rewind it and all that good stuff. But I saw it on video, and I was just. It kind of just hit me out of nowhere because I didn't know what to expect. Um, I think the way it was marketed and the way, you know, I think it was kind of a flop and it, and it was marketed in a way where, I don't know, almost like an adventure film, I, I believe. And, you know, but it's the the way it's shot. And I, I believe it, it, if you listen to the director's commentary, they talk about it, like just what they did with the film to get like the kind of the bright, the bright silvers and, 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 you know, just the look of it. But, uh, Again, it's it's a it's a mission film um, that kind of goes awry, and then you you get these these turns from these characters. What they intended to do at first kind of gets turned on its head, and the final one of the final scenes just always gets me when when they they get the the you know the people across the border. Um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he kind of puts his hand up like kind of like a thank you and. And, you know, they all do the same. And I just, that part always gets me and I, I love it. No, I, I did see Three Kings in the cinema. And I'm, I am already kicking myself. The fact it didn't get on my list of honorable mentions. I actually thought that there was something wrong with the print when I saw it. Because you talk about the uh, director's commentary. And I did see it later on then on, on DVD. Listen to the commentary. And I, I'm pretty sure that David O. Russell talks about the fact that they used, like, either they used color correction or they just made sure that each of the three main acts of the film were color corrected completely differently watching the film i actually thought you know that there's something really off with the color like everything's like really orange or really like kind of bright or, or oversaturated it just it's, it's clearly a conscious decision on his part but you know, i actually thought there was something wrong with the print but yeah it's a brilliant film brilliant central cast of cast of george clooney ice cube and mark Wahlberg, and spike jones that's yeah spike jones like the, yes the of course fourth, the fourth king kind of and it i always remember that where it shows that scene where i think isn't it um Mark Wahlberg's character of Troy gets shot, and he actually shows what the bullet has done as this kind yes. of passed into his pancreas. Right, really grim, but yeah, really good film. Kind of almost like a kind of you know an adventure war film from the sixties, but then kind of done in a in a sort of down and dirty, gritty, almost indie style. Again, one of my favorites. Right, my number three. You know, putting this film in number three, I'm thinking, you know, what am I doing? This film is this is one of the greatest films of all time, but. I've always classed my choice for number three as more of a historical epic, but it is actually another film set in World War One, and it is Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. It's the, it's the story of T.E. Lawrence, an English officer who successfully united and led the war in Arab tribes during World War One against the Turkish army. You know, not only is it, for me personally, one of the greatest films ever made, it's also one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen. Cinematographer Freddie Young, you know, his work on this film is just staggering. You know, for me, the desert always looks great on film. It's something that's been captured in numerous, innumerable war films, science fiction films, and westerns. You know, but the vistas in Lawrence of Arabia are like nothing else I, I've ever seen captured on film. And Lean's tale of a of a of a great and very driven, but also a man not without his own flaws, is as Steven Spielberg has described it, and it's one of my favorite descriptions of a film by another director: a miracle of a film. And you can guarantee that this is a film that will be getting its own episode at some point later on down the line. 
um, on film 89. So maybe from that point of view, I shouldn't say anything more about it. But as I said, this film could have easily been number one on this list, save for the fact that the other two picks are films which I've watched more. But to this day, I really do lament never having seen Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen in 70mm because it is just, it's just jaw-dropping. What an incredible film. Look at that cast. Pedro Toole, Omar Sharif, Alec Guinness, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins, Jose Ferrer and Claude Rains. Easily one of the best films ever made. And maybe I've put it further down here because if we ever do favourite historical epics, I know that there's a fair chance that this could be number one. Full disclosure, I you know I have seen the movie, but I only saw it for the first time maybe like within the last five years, and it's it is a very good film. I, I wouldn't put it, you know, I know a lot of people. I think James uh, Hancock has a lot of you know love for this movie, and like yourself, you know, I, I wouldn't put it up on you know anywhere close to my my favorite films of all time. But I think maybe sometimes what happens when when I see movies that are you know uh, of that scale and of that time. I think I'm kind of I'm of my own time. And so like, you know, I, I tend to my favorite movies tend to be around, you know, when I grew up and, and hmm. you know, that that era. And, you know, because I've been kind of at that time when you see something like that, you know, there's probably not many films that have been done like that. But I have more distance from that. So I've seen so many more films in between that time period. So I think it kind of like skews my view of of, of films. You know, I, I fully understand, Jacob, going into a film that's as revered as Lawrence of Arabia. It's like showing someone Citizen Kane who's maybe never seen the film. Given the fact that the film is so highly regarded, is that film ever going to live up to what your perceived expectations might be? Maybe not. But now that you've seen it once, I definitely say go watch it again. Because now that you sort of get over that maybe difficult hurdle of expectation, I, I guarantee that you, you, you'll start to see things and notice things that maybe you didn't really appreciate on first viewing. But maybe when I saw the film, what was I? I think I was in my late teens when I first saw it and I was impressed by it, but it's in subsequent viewings that it's grown to become one of my favourite films. I will do that. So what are we on now, Jacob? Uh, your number two? Two, yeah. So mine is set against the backdrop of uh, Somalia and you mentioned it already on your honourable mentions, but it's uh, uh, Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down. Oh, brilliant. I saw this in the uh, theater twice. You know, I think when I went and saw it, like on opening weekend, I was so like enthralled by it that I, I went back and saw it again. I I believe by myself even. Um, but uh, I just, I, I love the movie. Um, it, it's another movie that, you know, I, I just recently watched, I think, you know, or rewatched uh, maybe about a few weeks ago. The cast is just, you know, it's got a bunch of, you know, you know, kind of small parts, but uh, played by, you know, a lot of well-known actors, but they they all kind of do their job and, and you know, nobody's like overpowering any scenes. And but it just it's it's just crazy. It's a crazy, you know, story, you know, um, about us being uh, the U.S. being in the, this uh, territory and, you know, just how fast things can go awry. And just with the this region just being so just kind of in chaos that things, you know, just unravel so, so fast. So there, there, you know, there's a lot of tension in this movie and great moments and, you know, some good action and everything, but, uh, it, it's one of Ridley Scott's, uh, for, for me, one of uh, my favorite of his. I, I gotta say, I absolutely agree, Jacob. And you, you mentioned you, you, you saw the film twice in quick succession. You could probably count right on one hand, the amount of films I've seen 
more than once in the cinema, not counting uh, re-releases of classic films. Black Hawk Down, I went to see on opening night, and then I went to see it again the following week, because I just think it was such a dense film. There was so much going on. The, the cast list is staggering. It's just, you know, everyone's in the film. It's, and it's just like it's like a who's who of Hollywood talent at the time back in 2001. It is a really good film. But one of the characters, which you know I'm going to be mentioning in my number two pick, a character who is basically just someone who's completely devoid of kind of emotion and, and morality and just gets the job done. And there's a character in this played by Eric Banner. I think his name is Hoot. And he's just a, the perfect soldier. He goes in does a job you know doesn't allow emotion or morality or whatever to get in the way and then just just carries on and and it's like what is driving this man to do what he's what, what he does and I, I think he actually gives a sort of little kind of speech in the film kind of you know outlining his mantra and his outlook on war but yeah you know I, I think one of the things that Black Hawk Down does quite well is it, it on the surface it may come across as one of these sort of gung-ho sort of American war films and I, I don't think it questions the morality uh, of why they're there in Mogadishu in the first place it just deals with the ground level thing of what these soldiers are going through and it doesn't you know it doesn't play the the, the Somali militia as, as evil you know like a lot of war films that do you know how many uh, World War Two films did it with the Japanese you know I don't think this film does that with the Somali militia and I think that is certainly to his his benefit. Yeah, it, it's a really good film, and, and you know, like I say, certainly it was it was quite high up on my list of honourable mentions. Right, my number two is a f- it's not a film; it's a TV miniseries, and it's one which I've mentioned before. Back on I think episode is it seventeen or eighteen when it was myself and Neil and Bill Scurry. It was our V and V the final battle episode, and that episode we talked about our favourite television miniseries. And my number one choice was Band of Brothers. It's still uh, rated number three on IMDb in the, the all-time greatest television shows with only Planet Earth 1 and 2 ahead of it. So it is you know, the most highly regarded television drama of all time. It consists of 10 hour-long episodes. It was written by Stephen Ambrose and many others and it was executive produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. So it's kind of very much like a spiritual follow-up to Saving Private Ryan but based purely on fact and you know the real life ordeal that these American and Allied soldiers went through. You know that the cast list is huge. You've got Damian Lewis, Ron Livingston, Donnie Wahlberg, Neil McDonough, Dale Dye, Michael Fassbender, David Schwimmer, Stephen Graham, Tom Hardy, Simon Pegg, Colin Hanks, Dominic Cooper, Jimmy Fallon, James McAvoy, Tom Hanks, and most of these aren't even the main players. I was talking about Eric Banner's character in Black Hawk Down. You've got Matthew Settle as the almost invincible and fearless killing machine, Ronald Spears, who is very much like the character of Hoot in Black Hawk Down. It's almost as like as if the hand of God is just protecting him from from harm and just making him this perfect killer machine. Uh, I've watched it at least twice. By the time we get to the last few episodes, and at the end of every episode, you, you it, it cuts to the, the actual real characters, some of whom are still alive, recounting the events that we've just seen unfold in the episode, and seeing them get still to this day moved by what they went what they went through and you know the friends and brothers which they lost in you know in in the European conflict it just it just gets to me every time and it the production values are phenomenal you know the, the Sopranos had already kicked off this sort of you know renaissance of television but Band of Brothers was where it truly you know where, where HBO just landed the first big hit I don't think if it was you know if it wasn't for the success of shows like The Sopranos and Band of Brothers, I don't think we would have ever got to the point where we were getting shows like Game of Thrones. Um, it could have easily been my number one, 
And the only reason it's not is because I've talked about it before and the film at number one is just a film that's been my favorite war film, I think, since I was a kid. So uh, like you, I, I, you know, I had this in my honorable mentions, but it could easily be on my list. I try to kind of keep mine to just to, to movies um, because it shows to me it's not a cheat, but it, because they're able to show more content. You know, because it's it's like roughly ten hours long. You know, they're able to develop the story a little bit more. But um, I own this, you know, and I've watched it, you know, a few times, and I'm probably due for another rewatching. And you had mentioned that they show the uh, the real, you know, people that it's based on the the 101st Airborne Division. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I believe, if I'm not mistaken. When they're showing, when they're you know at the uh, beginning or the ends of the episodes, when they when they have them talking, they don't put the name there until the last episode, yeah. where they then you you find out that these characters that you've been following are not character, you know these are real people that you're following, that these are the these are the these are the guys, you know, um, and I you know it just like everything you said, it's just super powerful, great cast, done so well, you know, one of HBO's most highly regarded uh, shows, and I, and I agree with you, you know, without without a, a mini series like this, you know, there's so many more that that wouldn't have come before it or after it. So Jacob, uh, we've come to your number one. Okay, my number one is Vietnam. It was mentioned already. Platoon, you know, Oliver Stone's ah, Platoon. Yeah. Um, I saw this in the cinema, you know, with my little brother and my dad, you know, my, my dad used to take us to the movies, you know, basically every other weekend we'd, we'd go see the, you know, whatever the newest release was, we'd go see it. So, you know, I was probably a little too young to really understand it, but it still just really like got, got me. And then I've seen the movie, you know, so many times since, you know, I've rewatched it tons of times, you know, since, and it's still just a powerful film. It's got great acting, you know, uh, it's got this kind of, you know, moral dilemma in between two different kinds of soldiers with the Tom Berenger Barnes, who's just kind of just doing his orders and he's just ruthless and uh, more kind of zen uh william defoe's character um elias and sheen oh chris chris uh just his uh charlie sheen's you know chris just him having to survive this thing you know just him having this kind of back and forth between you know what what he should do and he kind of i think kind of falls in between at the end but uh it it's semi Semi based on, I think, uh, some of uh, Oliver Stone's real, uh, real experiences, you know, within the war. Um, I read an autobiography of his, or a, a biography, not an autobiography, but, um, and he talked about people that he served under that, you know, he had kind of two characters like this that, you know, he had similar um, misgivings about and whatnot. But uh, Best Picture winner, I think it's, it's, it's one of those films that'll be watched, you know, for years and years. Yeah, I agree, and I, I only put it on my honourable mentions list because if we were doing this list 20 years ago, I think there's a fair chance that Platoon would have been my number one. But I just haven't seen it for the longest time now. But it's one of those films where, when I was younger, I, I watched this film over and over and over again. You know, much like I did with films like Aliens and Robocop and, and you know, Predator. You know, this was one of those films I just watched over and over again. I think maybe because of that, I haven't gone back to it for a long time. But that's not, you know, in any way to the film's detriment. It is an absolutely remarkable film. Oliver Stone has done quite a few war films now, but I think this is without doubt his best. And I know a lot of people would say it's JFK, but for me personally, I think this is Oliver Stone's best film. Yeah, definitely one of, one of his one of my favorites of his. So we're on to my number one. 
as I said earlier, my number one. Um, I'm not saying this is the best war film ever made, but this has been one of my favourite war films ever since I first saw it when I was a young child. It is a film that, as soon as I hear the, the music from it, and, and there's a certain scene in particular that will probably make my list of my all-time favourite scenes in any film, it is uh, The Great Escape from 1963. It's, it's just it's everything that, as a, as a young boy, I wanted in a film. It was an incredible cast. You know, a load of them were sort of carryovers from John Sturgis's previous film, The Magnificent Seven, in 1960. Steve McQueen as Hiltz, the Cooler King, is probably the coolest on-screen character I'd seen, maybe with a few exceptions, maybe Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford. It's a huge, sprawling epic of a film. It's, what is it? I think it's nearer... Two, two hours and 52 minutes. Two hours, yeah, two hours, 50, you know, ne- nearly a three-hour film. So for, you know... Looking back to when I would have first seen this film, I probably would have been about nine or ten years old. But I was just completely riveted from start to finish. Growing up as I did with a with a mother and a grandmother that sort of force-fed me a diet of older films from like the 50s and 60s. You know, a lot of these actors were household names to me, like James Garner, Charles Bronson, Donald Pleasance, James Coburn. And to see them all together in this film, it's just absolute cinematic perfection the scene that i was talking about you've got elmer bernstein's score one of the greatest film scores i've ever heard but it's the scene of steve mcqueen escaping from the germans on the motorbike it's just absolutely incredible and as i've said before kind of half jokingly but every time i watch that scene i always think maybe this time he's going to make the jump it's just you know it's kind of like a film of two halves the first half is like a sort of almost light-hearted adventure with all of these allied prisoners of war who have been put in this sort of super german camp which is supposed to be escape proof you know you know the germans kind of shot themselves in the foot by putting together all of the you know the the most competent escape artists in one place the, the first part is them all trying to formulate this really daring escape instead of just like two or three guys 250 men you know go out in a series of tunnels which they've dug but then the second half is is about the the nazis trying to recapture them and like the the, the sense of tension and you you just want these guys to escape you know above all and, and the fact that the one character that i wanted to escape more than any of them hilts actually gets captured but fortunately he doesn't get killed but there's just something just sort of incredibly satisfying about seeing him coolly walk back into the camp pick up his his baseball bat and his glove and just go back to what he was doing before it is my favorite war film and it probably always will will be a lot of that is down to nostalgia but I, i do think it is genuinely one of the greatest adventure films and certainly one of the greatest war films ever made yeah, it's a, it's a really great film. It, it's one that I saw later in life, probably within like the last 10 years or, or whatnot. But uh, definitely I need to give it a revisit. But um, I'm not sure if I'm right in this one. But uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is that the scene? Is that the movie that they put uh, yeah. uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in? It is. It is. And um, when I saw it, I was sat next to Steve Amos and uh, Tony Sower. Tony made his debut on our uh, Irishman episode a few episodes back. I actually looked across at the both of them. And I was like, holy shit, they've <laughs> actually done this. And I, I, I was just grinning from ear to ear. Putting that scene in there was just complete genius. And, and God bless Tarantino for doing it. So that's it. That's um, mine and Jacob's uh, favourite war films or, or depictions of war on film and television. Jacob, I think at this point now, you may as well go and get yourself a beer or just put your feet up because aside from the rest of the Film 89 crew and our friends over at the Wrong Real crew and, and our close film Twitter friends, we have had 
an absolutely phenomenal response on Twitter, Facebook, and email. So I'll start with Neil's pecs, Neil Gaskin, who obviously you will all know as uh, my partner in crime here on Film 89. I'll start with his honourable mentions. He's picked Hacksaw Ridge and 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. He says, I'm as shocked as you that a Michael Bay film makes any of my lists. Another one which he's put, which I really am kicking on myself that I didn't pick on my list of honourable mentions, was Lone Survivor. And he's put Starship Troopers. He says, cheating I know, but he says a lot more about war than many war films are supposed to. And his pick going from five to one, and number five, The Dirty Dozen, number four, The Great Escape, number three, Inglorious Bastards, number two, Braveheart, and number one, Full Metal Jacket. Another one of the Film 89 crew, Steve Amos. He's picked number five, Full Metal Jacket. Number four, Waltz with Bashir. Number three, Paths of Glory. Number two, Rome, Open City. And number one, Lawrence of Arabia. His honourable mentions are Bullet in the Head, Apocalypse Now, Downfall, Das Boot, Red Cliff, and the 2009 live-action version of Mulan, a film which I hadn't seen until Steve sent me the trailer yesterday, but it does look really good. Hayden Spurl, another one of my uh, Film 89 brethren. He's picked number five, Downfall, number four, Lawrence of Arabia, number three, Schindler's List, number two, Deer Hunter, and number one, Apocalypse Now. Good old Richie Roberts, number five, Full Metal Jacket, number four, Platoon, number three, Band of Brothers, number two, Braveheart, and number one, Saving Private Ryan. His honourable mentions are Schindler's List, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I don't know if that's a joke, Rich, (laughs) really, come on. And finally, this is a good choice, Blackadder Goes Forth, which... Yeah, famous British comedy show, but that fourth season, by the time you get to the final episode with them, you're going over doing the big push. It is just gut-wrenching. Tony Sower has picked, in no particular order, Empire of the Sun, Apocalypse Now, Paths of Glory, Schindler's List, and the Battle of Algiers. Good old Jim Cottle, he made his return uh, last episode. He's picked number five, The Battalion, which is kind of like a Russian version of Full Metal Jacket. Number four, Schindler's List. Number three, Paths of Glory. Number two, Apocalypse Now. And number one, Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers. He says he couldn't pick between the two. But he's also messaged me just before this episode, having just seen tonight, 1917. And he said, chuck it in the list at number three and knock out my number five pick because he says it is without doubt one of the greatest war films he's ever seen. So good man. There you go. Another good big man. thumbs up from uh, another one of the team. Um, another one of the Film 89 team, James Pierce, who you'll find on Twitter at James underscore 2045. Number five, The Great Escape. Number four, The Dam Busters. Number three, Kelly's Heroes. Number two, Band of Brothers. Number one, Zulu. And he says that's a list the subject to change every six seconds. Good old Martin Kessler has picked in no particular order. Trial on the Road, Attentat, A Man Escaped, Kagamusha, and A Screaming Man. His honourable mention goes to Enemy at the Gates. Good old Bill Scurry, again in no particular order. Come and See, Ivan's Childhood, Paths of Glory yet again. So there's loads of love for Kubrick's film there. Saving Private Ryan and War of the Planet of the Apes. So a nice uh, Ah, left-of-field choice there. Sneaky pick. Another former guest on the podcast, John Cribbs, you can find on Twitter, at The Last Machine. Army of Shadows, Bitter Victory, Gallipoli, Grave of the Fireflies, and Small Soldiers. We Cut Heads, a Spike Lee podcast you can find on Twitter at We Cut Heads Pod, says that theirs covers all sides of war. Come and see, closely watch trains, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, The Rat, never heard of that one, and lastly, Ivan's Childhood. Fred Schaefer on Twitter at FCSNVA, 
has picked Bridge on the River Kwai, The Dirty Dozen, Full Metal Jacket, Inglorious Bastards and The Great Escape. Ben Fulkman, who was on Twitter at BenFulkman99. The Big Red One, Hamburger Hill, The Thin Red Line, Memphis Bell and Das Boot. Milwaukee Mob on Twitter at The Milwaukee Mob. Number five, Pork Chop Hill. Number four, Midway. Number three, The Pacific. Number two, Band of Brothers. And number one, Paths of Glory. So he had more love for Paths of Glory. We definitely have to cover this in a future episode, Jacob, I think. Next up, we've got SBLU on Twitter, at X1SBLU. Thank you for picking such an easy name. My most favourite is a movie which shows almost no war scenes. Johnny got his gun. His condition seems to be a metaphor for the fighting of war and its results. His others are All Quiet on the Western Front, The Thin Red Line, Come and See, and Threads. Randall McGavock on Twitter, at RMGavock. How about The Battle of Algiers? Not your traditional war movie, but done really well. Also, a discussion of Kubrick and his war films might be interesting. And then he's listed Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Doctor Strangelove, Full Metal Jacket, and Barry Lyndon. Another friend of the Film 89 team, Stephen Simpson, you can find on Twitter, at Steve007. In no particular order, The Great Escape, Saving Private Ryan, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, and The Dambusters. I know that Steve is a huge fan of war films. Another one on Twitter, Chris1902, at Christian Isaac H, has picked Jarhead, Letters from Iwo Jima, The Deer Hunter, and Born on the 4th of July. Guillermo Pena, at GAPena10, on Twitter, has picked number four, Dunkirk, number three, Platoon, number two, Black Hawk Down, and number one, Saving Private Ryan. Tor Thornson on Twitter, at Thornson1NK, has done a huge list. I'll fly through them as quick as I can. Band of Brothers, Come and See, Das Boot, Saving Private Ryan, Master and Commander, Generation Kill, Ran, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, Paths of Glory, Black Hawk Down, Black Adder Goes Forth, another one, Dunkirk, Lawrence of Arabia, The Eagle Has Landed, and Inglorious Bastards. He has put another list of titles he forgot, but I'm going to have to cut that for time reasons so apologies Tor next we've got Off The Rails you can find on Twitter at Go Train Avenger has picked Band of Brothers Paths of Glory The Deer Hunter Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now next up on Twitter is Well You Say That you will find on Twitter at Real Arsenalism huge list but he's picked Come and See Das Boot Cross of Iron All Quiet on the Western Front The Tin Drum Starship Troopers again Macbeth the 2015 version The Big Red One The Great Escape Lifeboat, Black Hawk Down, Apocalypse Now, The Hurt Locker, Casablanca, yay, Love and Death, The Deer Hunter, and Stalag 17. And lastly on Twitter, you've got Gsmooth89XX, has picked Force 10 from Navarone and Platoon. And finally, we've got a few from Facebook. First off, Charlie Bishop has got Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan really stand out for me. It's not just depicting war, but the mental toll it takes on those otherwise average Joe soldiers and their journeys. Then we've got Chris Gray, who has got Saving Private Ryan, Hamburger Hill, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, When the Trumpets Fade, The Thin Red Line, and Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, Jacob Garcia has picked Come and See in Full Metal Jacket. Jared Ryan has got just got one pick, that's the Battle of Algiers. And last but not least, Gareth Perry has picked The African Queen, The Great Escape, Where Eagles Dare, Saving Private Ryan, and Bridge Over the River Kwai. I do apologize for anyone's lists who we didn't read out. We have had a huge response on Twitter, Facebook, and email. So thank you so much for that. We only put the tweet out, um, I think about two days ago, and we've had an overwhelming response. So thank you very much for everyone's input there. 
So there we have it, Jacob. Um, I'm all done with war now, mate. I, I need a bit of peace and a bit of sleep. <laughs> Well, it seems like the fans love the war film. So, you know, yes, you know, thanks to everybody that, you know, contributed. And, uh, um, you know, thank you for having me on uh, again for for this topic, you know, uh, talk about this film and, and anybody that's made it this far. If you haven't seen it, go see this movie. Yeah, fully agree. So, Jacob, where can people find you if they want to hit you up on social media for chat about films, boxing or anything else? Yeah, you could find me on uh, Twitter at JRATM23. So the number two and three. Actually, I'm getting ready to release. Uh, so I have a boxing website, jabhookboxing.com. I don't really do too much writing for it. I haven't lately, but uh, every now and then I'll, I'll do something. But uh, I'm going to do my kind of year-end awards recap, which I did on a podcast, uh, Pound for Pound Boxing Report. So if you want to hear my boxing talk, that, that you can find it there. Um, and then also the 10 most fights, the 10 top fights I want to see in 2020. So that should be coming out soon. So look out for that and you'll see that on my Twitter feed. Awesome. And as usual, I've just got to say thank you very much to everyone who follows us, who uh, retweets our stuff, who listens to the podcast, who leaves us a review. Incredibly grateful. And I don't want to sound like a stack record, but I genuinely mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm speaking on behalf of Jacob and Neil and Richie and everyone else at Film 89, Steve and Hayden. I mean, we are all just so grateful. We can't thank you enough. Please, if you haven't already, leave us a positive iTunes review if you could. It will do the podcast a hell of a amount of good and it will make Apple's rather strange algorithm, you know, promote us that little bit more. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. Uh, you can find all of the Film 89 crew at film89.co.uk. Uh, please check out our multi-part, I think, is it Jacob, nine-part uh, review of 2019? Eight or nine, yeah, something like that. Yeah, just a huge amount of stuff about all the best films in television that the, you know, the guys have written about from last year. And you can find all of us on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. So uh, that's it for another episode. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, so as usual, stay safe, stay happy, but most importantly, stay classy. <laughs>